Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. And uh, I promise you that I'm going to throw the flag on myself. By the time this is over, there will be intentional grounding. So I can't avoid that. Those privileged to have walked into their hallowed sanctuary speak of the magnificent beauty and architectural wonder of the great cathedrals of Europe. Virtually no expense was spared in the elaborate design or decor. They are home to rare masterpieces of notable artists and monuments to construction geniuses in the days long before our contemporary cranes, lifts, and structural resources were even considered. And none was a quick build project. Centuries, not decades, marked the process. Perhaps the most famous of those that remain is the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, France. By cathedral construction standards, it was a rapid build taking only 182 years. The average construction timeline of cathedrals of England are somewhere between 250 and 300 years. The French Bristol Cathedral took no less than 688 years to complete. So why so grand? And why so expensive? And why so elaborate? Besides the political motivation behind many of those who invested their wealth in their making, there was a spiritual sense that somehow, in the fine details of magnificent architecture, the wonders of the glory of God might somehow be reflected. Now, the writer to the Hebrews is addressing professing Jewish Christians being tempted to escape persecution by denying Christ. He proves the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament heroes as he urges the hearers to persevere to the end, reminding them that Christ, in whom they have placed their trust, is building an earthly temple that by its design and beauty will reflect his incomparable glory. And each of them is a critical part of his building program. I want to start reading chapter 2, verse 14, down through Chapter 3, verse 6, we'll look at these six verses uh, as most of us hoped for yesterday and overtime. I, in the first service, you got your overtime. I'll try to edit it down here. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The word is fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the key to the text. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. There's a parenthetical here. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were being spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now if you use the Faith Bible Church Bible study methods outline, the coma, which is not what happens five minutes after I start preaching, although it does, but it stands for context, observation, meaning, and application. Our context is declared by the word therefore at chapter 3, verse 1, and you will see that at least 13 times or more throughout this letter. The point is, is that the therefore is the pastoral application of what has just been declared doctrinally or truth. So in our particular case, they have just declared that from chapter 1-1, that in the times past God spoke through many prophets in many different ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. And then He goes on to say that, that He had to become flesh and blood so that He could put to death death by His own death so that we could live. Therefore, because He has become flesh and blood, He took on what was uncommon to Him by becoming what is common to us, that is humanity, flesh and blood, so that by His grace, according to His letter to Peter, to the exiles, so that we might take on what is uncommon to us, that is the divine nature, though it is common to Him. Therefore, He came in the flesh, holy brothers. He identifies it. He combines two words, so it's a word of consecration coupled with a word of affection. He's he's speaking about the brothers of Jesus, and he said that in chapter 2, where he's not ashamed to call them his brothers, and some of us have siblings of which we don't want anybody in the public schools to know that we're actually related to those. In this case, Jesus has a whole family full of those people that are an embarrassment, and yet he's not ashamed to call them his brothers. So they're the brothers of Jesus, and they're also brothers of one another, which is, is part of what's happening in Hebrews, the distinction. Now remember again that Hebrews is written, it's a letter written to the Jews, to the Hebrews, primarily to three different reading or hearing audiences. And you're going to get tired of hearing it, but it, it, it's what keeps us interpreting it with clarity. The first reader, the first hearer, are those individuals who have understood from the Old Testament the promises, portraits, principles that point forward to one Messiah, one Christ who is coming, and they believe that they see that fulfilled in Jesus. And so by faith, they cast their whole lot in with Him. But things have gotten hard. It's difficult. The Christian life wasn't near as easy and as delightful as they thought it was going to be, and they're beginning to waver in their commitment. So he's writing to them saying, if you leave Jesus, where are you going to go? Encourages them to stay there. The second group are those individuals who intellectually concur that this is all the Old Testament does, in fact, point to this Jesus. In fact, if you look at it with honest intellectual eyes, you'd say, yes, this Jesus fulfills the promise. But the price tag of bowing the knee of the heart is too high. Perhaps you'll lose family, friends, approval, job, whatever, or just simply that you don't 
you're not yet tired of being the king in your own life. Or as Campus Crusade for Spiritual Laws used to say, you know, there, there is a throne in your heart and you've decided you're going to sit on it. And so even though intellectually you see this all lines up truthfully, the reality is you're too proud to let Jesus be your Lord and your Savior. But the third one, and this is probably some of you, are those individuals who said it just seems to have credibility and it seems to offer life and I don't have that there's something missing and so he writes to those who are continuing to inquire and say is it possible that we might find in this Jesus so when he begins chapter 3 with therefore holy brothers he he is clearly writing not to the those other two groups but he is writing literally to those who have by faith come to know Jesus as a personal savior therefore they've been adopted born again into the family of God and he describes them as holy which he says in chapter 2 verse 11 is that the same one that sanctified Christ also sanctified you to be holy means to be set apart to be designated for divine purposes it, it has to do with our character but it also has to do with the calling and the purpose he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. He says in chapter 3, verse 12 of Colossians, but put on then as God's chosen one, and then he describes the chosen one as those who are holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, or verse 9, he says it this way, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, a dedicated, consecrated, set-apart purpose, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. And then the stunning line, before the ages began, before the world was created, before the universe was formed, he has already determined that in Christ Jesus, he would set us apart for divine purposes. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share, that's the thing we have in common, we partake in a heavenly calling. We have this common bond. The thing that glues us together is not our common backgrounds, our common personal histories. It's not our common vocations. It's not even the size of our families and all that. The thing that binds us together is that we have all received a call to salvation from heaven. He calls us from heaven so that he can call us to heaven. That's the argument that he is making in the book of Hebrews. He calls us. You remember that he says that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the earth. Or he says in James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. Your relationship to Jesus as your brother and to God as your Father is based on God's initiative in calling you. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, he says it this way. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred 
that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The first covenant is the law of Moses. It's the standard by which this is what the people of God will look like, but we repeatedly fail. Even if we had kept all nine, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, hit it out of the park on nine and then driving down through downtown Rome, I look to the right on a stoplight and there's somebody with a brand new chariot and I violate law number 10. I coveted. My father used to give himself a pass on that. I think he's reading between the text lines. But he would say, coveting is not wanting what somebody else has. The coveting is wanting them to have it and you to have one also. So on my way home after studying this text on Friday afternoon, somebody, poor timing, pulled up right next to me with a 67 Mustang fully restored. And I had one that wasn't nearly as pristine in its day. And just for a minute, I broke law number 10. He's called, he justified. Verse Romans chapter 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew before the foundation of the earth, he chose them by name. He also predestined, he determined in advance, this is their purpose in life, their mission. And it was to be conformed to the image of his son. And those that he determined in advance, that he predestined, he executed the plan by calling them. And those whom he called, he also justified. He sent them out of his courtroom as innocent, guilt-free, even though they were guilty of sin, but because of what he did in his son. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is, he slowly makes us less like us and more like Jesus until one day, he says in 1 John, that we are going to be like him because we are going to see him exactly as he is. The glorification will find its reality in his glorious presence. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with each other in love, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Not to create unity. It's already been created. We have this heavenly calling in common. But to fight to maintain that unity of the Spirit and do that fight in the bond of peace. One author said, we are shares in a heavenly calling because he was a share in our earthly life. That's what he talked about in chapter 2. And he goes on to say, and consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, whom he describes here as the apostle, not an apostle, but the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. To consider means to fixate your attention upon. It means to contemplate, to consider, to weigh, to wonder. It's it's, it's to try to understand, as John did 60 years after Jesus went to be with the Father, in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, And the Word became flesh, and he pitched his tent, he tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld his glory. That is, we, we considered, we studied, we tried to understand, we weighed it, and it was the glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. He uses this three times in Hebrews chapter 11. First of all, he uses it of Sarah, who she considered him faithful, who had promised it. It was against all realistic possibilities on any level, but she 
thought about who it was that had promised it, and on the basis of what she knew about he who had promised, she continued to maintain her faith. In chapter 11, verse 19, her husband Abraham, the same thing, when he's taken his son Isaac in obedience to God up on the mountain, and he's going to offer him as a sacrifice, and he fully intends to follow through, but it says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, he considered, he thought about it, he measured what he knew about God in light of what God had asked of him, and he con- concluded that God was able even to raise him from the dead, even though no one had ever been raised from the dead in Abraham's lifetime. Or again, Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses, who will come to quickly in the text, he, that is Moses, considered the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking for the reward. He came to that moment in his life at about age 40, that he began to look at all of the, all of the benefits of being a, 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 the grandson of the Pharaoh, of the king, living in a palace with all the educational opportunities and everything. It says in Acts chapter 7 that he was a man that was great in word and wisdom and strong and intelligent and everything. He had everything going for him, but he looked at the people of God who were despised and outcast, and he weighed it, he considered it, and he said, suffering with God's people for God's purpose far outweighs the benefits and the pleasures of my prosperity. So he says, consider Jesus. Think through Jesus. Don't just make it a casual kind of stop by once in a while during the week, but to make, to refocus, to recenter your life on the fact that all that I am and all that I do is because of what Christ is and what Christ has done. Focus there, he says. Consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. It gives him two labels here, the apostle. An apostle is simply an ambassador that has been sent on behalf of another with a message to be delivered. He's not, he's not to craft his own message, but he is simply to take the message from the one that has delegated him and take it, and when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of the one who sent him. When he signs a document or agreement, he signs with the authority of the one who sent him. It is responsibility and authority coupled but it is for the sake of another. Jesus is that apostle. He had to defend that over and over in the book of John. You'll see over and over he talks about the one who has sent me, the Father who has sent me. John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He was an apostle on a mission, an ambassador on a mission to bring a message of hope Not to condemn the world, it was already condemned, it was already living under judgment, but there is hope for those who will believe. Or as he said in John chapter 6, verse 29. Now this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He speaks on God's behalf, the words he speaks are God's words, and God's plan for you is that you'll hear those words and you'll be all in. You'll cast all of your life and all your hope into him. And he's also the high priest, and we talked about that last week, and we're going to pick it up in great detail in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. But the high priest was the ultimate final mediator, go-between, between sinful people and a holy God. So he says in chapter 2, verse 17, so that he might become a merciful, a merciful, when you give mercy, that means you don't give people what they deserve. But on the other hand, he's not only as one who is merciful, but he is also faithful. That is, he keeps the task 
that he was sent to accomplish in the service of God. One author put it this way, the high priest usually showed no emotion at all. They carried out their duties by typically without becoming personally involved with those that they served all day long. People are coming with their animal sacrifices, going, man, I blew it again. I messed it up again. I need a sacrifice. Shed the blood, and they just get busy with the work. They're almost oblivious to the souls and the individuals before them. They carried out their duties, but typically without becoming personally involved with those who they serve. But Jesus is a different kind of mediator. He fully identifies with the broken and the needy. He genuinely feels what you feel. He is, therefore, a merciful and faithful high priest. We'll look at it in chapter 4. So, therefore, he understands what you're going through and invites you to come boldly before him. He goes on in the text, who was faithful to he who appointed him. Unlike other priests along the way, there was in the family and there were multiples who were possibility. Jesus was not a self-appointed representative of sinful people to a holy God. Unlike Caiaphas who stood at the trial of Jesus and he wasn't really the high priest, but his son-in-law was, but Caiaphas had kind of muscled in and he had the political throes and power on that. And he said, by contrast, this Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. The word faithful simply means to be trusted to properly discharge the mission or the charge that is given. It's to do the work of a representative of another without seeking your own glory, but seeking only the glory of the one who sent. Jesus was faithful to the Father who sent him. As a lad, you remember when he was 12 years old and he gets to go to Jerusalem for the first time as a young man. And his parents leave and they don't realize Jesus isn't in the crowd with them. It takes them three days to find him. They finally, his mother embarrasses him in front of the PhDs of the land by saying, son, didn't you think we were worried about you? He goes, mom, didn't you understand I must be about my father's business? He was on mission as a 12-year-old. At the middle of his life, John chapter 9, when there was pressure mounting against him and rejection of him, he was faithful. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me. And then at the end of his life, that last night in the Garden of Gethsemane, the end of his life, he says, Father, if there is any other way, if this plan that we crafted before the foundation of the earth, if there's other plan B that would work, let's go with plan B. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So he said in John chapter 17, verse 4, and just a spoiler alert or a heads up perhaps, I was warning in, in February, the end of February, uh, six churches get together every year, except last year with COVID, for a Bible conference. We host it here, and we always serve uh, Chick-fil-A. I'm not sure why. Being out from under the law, I think we should go with pulled pork or something, but they didn't put me in charge of the menu. But we're going to preach this year, six pastors, six churches, going to preach through the book of John, or the, John chapter 17, the chapter in six messages on Friday and Saturday. So kind of mark that on your calendar. John 17, at the end of his life, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Then he goes on to say, now Moses comes in. Just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. And when we want to make ourselves look better, the human characteristic is is that I discredit those around me. I I chip away at their pedestal. I I, I spread rumors or slander their reputation so that I look better than them. This author understood 
that Moses was the, was the greatest man in the history of Israel. I mean, beyond Abraham and beyond David, he was highly esteemed. So notice how he addresses it. He speaks glowingly of Moses, even though the argument that he's making is, is that Moses is here and Jesus is here, but he doesn't discredit Moses along the way. Moses is the great man of history. We could do a whole series on the life of Moses. In fact, Chuck Swindoll actually wrote a whole book on him. He talked about his timely birth, how in a, in a, in a, at the end of 400 years of slavery, when it was against the law to keep alive a son that was born, that he was born, and God formed uh, or protected him through that, and then put him in the best universities and schools of the land by having him adopted into the home of Pharaoh for his formative years. Then he came to that moment at age 40 when he made a courageous decision that he would fight for God's people and when it cost him everything, he went into, after mega fail, he goes into the wilderness for 40 years of learning how to shepherd flocks in the same wilderness he'll lead the people of God in later. You talk about his, his divine calling, the bush, bush refuses to burn up and God speaks to him there and he takes the call and he goes sort of, with courageous leadership. And he stands before the strongest leader of the world of the day, Potiphar, and he said, you let God's people go. He's a man with an intimate privilege. He met with God on the holy mountain. God met him there for 40 days and 40 nights. God would continue to meet him in the tent of meeting day after day. He demonstrated a shepherd's devotion he, when, when God was frustrated and angry with the people, he threatened to destroy them and to raise up another group for Moses to lead. And Moses said, Lord, no, take me, not them. He was willing to put his shepherd's heart in the way. He was the one who delivered the law. That's why it says in Acts chapter 13, I think it's verse 47, they call it the law of Moses. What does it look like to be the people of God? This is God's standard, God's expectation. They highly esteemed him. He's also the one that penned the first five books of your Bible. Moses was one of the greatest men in Israel's history. You see, I love the book on his life. The hand of providence preserved him as a baby in a basket in the Nile River. And it was the hand of God that dug his grave for him at the end of his life. And between those two points, it was just one miracle after another. Moses was faithful, just like Jesus in all the Father's household. But for Jesus has been counted as worthy of more glory than Moses. So he hasn't discredited Moses, but he's told him, he said, Jesus exceeds that. Why? He's already told us in chapter 1 that he was greater than the prophets. They spoke God's word, but he was God's word. He's greater than the angels. They delivered God's message, but Jesus was God's message. And now they're saying that he's greater than than Moses. Moses constructed a tabernacle where God would meet with the people of Israel, but Jesus was the tabernacle. I just ran a list of what you'll find in the text. He is the apostle, the sent one from God. He's the builder of the house. He's the creator. He's the son of God. He is the message that Moses delivered. So he goes on to say, as much more glory as the builder of the house has, more glory than the house itself. So one of our family members is building a new house, and uh, I stop by frequently because you know that I'm very interested in construction as long as somebody else is paying for it, and I find great delight in it. I'm always amazed at the quality and the construction. 
But the reality is, I don't praise the house, but the builder. That's what, that's what the author is arguing. There is a builder of the house, and the builder of the house was not Moses. Moses is a member of the house that God is building, but Jesus was the builder of the house. Therefore, he is greater. So he throws in, in verse 4, a parenthetical statement. He said, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Whenever you see some new thing going up, you know there was somebody that designed it and somebody that built it. So here is a declaration that God is the creator of the universe when he says and he, God, has built all things. He is ultimately its designer and creator. When you see nature, when you see the beauty of the sunrise, you see the changing of the seasons and all, it is a reminder that behind all that there is, there is a designer and there is someone who made it come to be. Then he comes back to Moses. He said, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. When we think of Moses, you know, the Jews don't think of him the same way that we did. We think in terms of his murdering an Egyptian. We think about him giving God the Heisman at the burning bush, giving him all these excuses why you got the right plan and the wrong man. We, we think in terms of him getting frustrated with the children of Israel, and rather than speaking to the rock, he strikes it again. But scriptures tell us that he reverenced God, Exodus 3. He desired intimacy with God, Exodus 34. He sought God's glory and not his own, Exodus 32. He was humble before God. He was a great man in the nation of Israel. He may have stumbled in his own personal life, but he carried out to completion the mission that God put before him. He led the children of Israel out of the promised land and put up with them for 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. He led them to the very shores of the land of the promise. In the margin of your Bible, they put down Exodus 39, and you go there. After they came down and he called the people to do a sacrificial offering, and they constructed the tabernacle, there's a summary of the report. The inspector comes along, he looks at it, and it says over and over, highlight it in your Bible. And they did it according to how the Lord had instructed them, or as God commanded them, so they did. It repeats itself over and over and over. So Moses may have stumbled and fallen in his individual life, but in the mission to which he was sent, he was successful, he was faithful. To his sibs, Miriam and Aaron, they got all over Moses, like, well, you're not all this and that. And then they were upset because he had married interracially. And God speaks to them and says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, but it's not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. God spoke to him face to face. And we haven't heard the end of Moses, even though Christ is greater. I want you to notice how Moses and Christ are brought together in the end in Revelation 15, 3, when it says, and we will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. He's always called the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. He goes on in verse 5 to say, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was a messenger from God to point the message forward to another. His task was to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. 
I didn't save enough time, but I, I would like to tell you the redemptive story as unfolded in the layout of the tabernacle. And Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Or in Luke 24, 27, after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus, meeting with the disciples who were slow of learning, said, in the, be in the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses was a messenger from God. Jesus was his message. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses is faithful as a servant. But Jesus was faithful as a son. When I was chewing on that this week, I, I couldn't help but think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And after he had gone to his father and said, Father, I wish you were already dead. I want you to give me what is my rightful inheritance, which means he was going to get one-third of the family estate. You see, in their day and age, the family estate was basically real estate. It was property. This is about all they had to pass from generation to generation. What he is saying is, I want, I want the ancestral land, and his father gave it to him, and he sold it on a fire sale auction. And he took the money, and he went into a foreign land, and he lived a wild life, the best friend's money can buy. But all of a sudden, a famine came, and the best friend's money can buy disappeared. And he finds himself a slave servant to a Gentile hog farmer. And he finds himself wanting to fight the pigs for the slop bucket. And he says, and he came to himself, and he said, in my father's house, even the servants have more than enough bread to eat. I will arise and I will say, I will go home to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. You see, he understood that a servant had certain rights and privileges and freedoms, but a son had a greater authority and a greater freedom. And he knew he'd squandered the opportunity. And he got home and his father reestablished him as a son in his household. There is a servant that is honored. You see, the dignity of a servant is not found in their work, but it's found in the character and the reputation of the one that they serve. There is an honor in being a servant in the house of God, but there is a greater honor if you're a son in the same house. So he goes on to say, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our hope, our boasting in our We've already been warned in chapter 2, verse 1. Be careful lest you drift. He's going to warn us again in chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There is the challenge that is always before us to finish strong. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. We don't have time to go into it. It's going to come up again. We'll pick the other text up. But the reality is this. We are not saved because we hang on faithfully in the storm. The reason we hang on faithfully in the storm because we have already been saved. So, what are the reasons given to fix our eyes on Jesus? Why should we make Him the center of our life and consider Him and the two that are given are simply this, because of who we are, we are the rescued and the redeemed. We are the stained 
enemies of God who have now been declared holy, consecrated, and righteous. We're the brothers of Jesus and the sons of the Father. Though we might be like Mephibosheth with our lifeless, useless legs swinging loosely under the banquet table with the cloth covered over, we're seated there unworthily as one of his many children. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. He has called us to use us for his purposes. But the second reason is because of who he is. Jesus is our bridge to God. He is the apostle, the sent one with a message from the Father. He is the high priest that is merciful and faithful, always there, dependable. He is the builder of the house. He is the son of the house owner. He is the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of the grave will not prevail against it. Now I want you to notice by observation that the word faithful appears four times in your paragraph. The word house appears seven times. So the question is, what is the house? And when you go to the Old Testament, it's used in two different ways. It's often used to describe a family, an ancestry, a heritage, the house of David, the house of Israel. But it's also used of the place where God meets his people, the place that displays to the world his glory. Six times in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is declared to be the house of God. Forty-three times, the temple is declared to be the house of God. I think that the proper interpretation of this paragraph is both. That he is building a family of which he is inviting us to come in as the adopted born-again children of God by the work that their eldest brother, Jesus, did on our behalf on the cross. That we are his brothers in the family, but we are also a holy dwelling place. We are a cathedral on earth to display the glories of God who called us. Very quickly, 1 Corinthians 3.17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. He's talking about the church. I would suggest you don't mess with the church. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And now he makes it personal, individual. Chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Or 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he asks this question. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. You're being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom this whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Or 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the support of the truth. Or the classic 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like a living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are that if, in fact, we hold fast to our confidence, our boasting, and our hope. The clock's gone. I jumped to the end. About four years ago, a couple of us on staff paid a visit to a friend who was a senior pastor of one of Lincoln's larger churches. We were, after uh, visiting about staff leadership structures and such, he graciously offered us a tour of their brand new facility. As we stood in the magnificent sanctuary, admiring its incredible beauty, I asked the pastor, when you were designing this, what was your goal and purpose? I loved his answer. The pastor said, we desired to somehow in our building reflect the amazing glory of God, but we didn't realize how expensive his glory would be. <laughs> For whatever you may have lost in following Jesus, you have been rewarded far more fully. You are the people of God. You're the dwelling place of God. You're the living stones of his earthly temple. You've been purchased at an incomparable price. Nothing you have lost or may ever lose can ever compare to all that you have and will gain. You are part of God's grand cathedral on earth, displaying his incomparable heavenly glory. You're here for a purpose because you were called by the builder. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed.